The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, friends. So glad to see you tonight. Uh, we have, um, you know, we have a treat before us tonight. We're going to be looking at John Calvin's views on election and predestination. And uh, you know, I have to tell you that as I was preparing this lesson today, Calvin's writings were rebuking me because I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, this is you know, election, predestination. People debate over this. But the more you read Calvin, it's like. This is good for the church. It's healthy and beneficial to our walks. And he, and he just does such an artful job of rebuking squeamishness and skittishness about this. As though somehow, if we could put an arm around God and say, God, you should have left this out of the Bible. We clearly can't handle it. All we ever do is argue over it. It's not helpful. God, what were you thinking? Go with me. Shorten the Bible a bit. We would have been better off. So we'll, we'll talk about all that. But, you know, this is a good, solid meat and it is meat you know the scripture reveals that there is milk and there is meat and uh you know milk are those simple basic christian doctrines you know the goodness of god love of god the death of jesus for sin his resurrection you know faith in christ these are the basic entry level doctrines that without them you're not a christian these are things that a child can understand at a simple level not to say that each one of those don't have their own infinite depths they do but still the bible does give us this idea of milk and meat but i think if anyone if you were to ask anyone what is meat and they say well it's just difficult doctrine hard to understand perhaps hard to accept a bit divisive perhaps all right what would be such doctrines they might come quickly to those that we're looking at tonight and so this is meat. But again, um, as it says in, in Hebrews, um, meat is for the mature who by constant use train themselves in, in godliness. And so this has a beneficial uh, role to play in our, in our lives. It's going to help us and in a number of ways as Calvin uh, opens uh, that up to us. So let's pray and begin our study. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for uh, each of the brothers and sisters that are here tonight. So grateful for the chance to fellowship with them. And Father, we thank you for the way you have worked across centuries. Oh, Lord, we're not arrogant in thinking this is the first generation the Holy Spirit's been at work in. Oh, Lord, you worked in every generation with your church, bringing them to a deeper knowledge of yourself through the Word of God. And as some of them took the time to write down the insights you were teaching them, oh, Lord, we can still benefit from their ministry even centuries later. So we thank you for our brother John Calvin. Uh, though he is dead, yet still he speaks, oh, Lord. Uh, and he is alive in your presence, as the scripture says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so we're grateful for the fact that uh, these that have gone before us are in fellowship with you now, waiting for the resurrection of the body. Father, I pray that you'd be with me tonight. Guard me from error. Help me, O Lord, to say only those things that are helpful and beneficial. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a superficial kind of way, you know, a class on John Calvin, thinking about John Calvin, people would immediately say, well, of course, you're going to do predestination, right? Election. When people think about Calvin and Calvinism, that's maybe one of the first things they think of, as though the brother invented these doctrines. Actually, Flynn and I were just talking about them that a moment ago. What human being could ever have invented the doctrines of predestination and election? They are so counterintuitive. 
let's say they didn't exist. God didn't give it to the, us in scripture. You just, I think that God, before the creation of the world, just thought about the human race before any of them were born and chose some of them to believe in him. It, it doesn't, we would never have come up with this. Clearly, these are doctrines that have their origin in the infinite recesses of the mind of God as revealed in Scripture. This is something he has told us. And that's foundational to our time tonight. God has told us these things. And what Calvin's going to do for us tonight is he's going to set up the boundaries by which we should be considering them so that we uh, understand them, but we don't go into speculation. He's always against speculation. And so he's going to very much set like a thermostat the lower and upper range and, and say... We should not think any less than this about predestination election, but neither should we go beyond what's written and try to speculate, try to understand those things God's not told us. So we're going to try to dig into that. Now, I could give you a little bit of historical theology here and say Calvin did not in any way, shape, or form invent the doctrine of predestination. Uh, certainly, Martin Luther wrote a great deal about God's sovereignty and salvation before Calvin was on the scene in his debate with Erasmus on the freedom of the will, or actually the bondage of the will. And so, uh, as someone said to me rather humorously, he was shocked to find out that Luther was a Calvinist. Um, you know, uh, that's only humorous if you know the chronology and the sequence. You know, Calvin would have looked up to Luther as a father in the faith, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it's even more shocking when you find out that Augustine was a Calvinist. That's even more humorous. All right, Augustine living centuries, even a millennia before Calvin was born. Uh, but uh, Augustine certainly... Uh, defended these doctrines, the doctrine of, of predestination, double predestination, those kinds of things, uh, as found in, in the book of Romans and in his debate with Pelagius on the freedom of the will. And, uh, of course, all of us who hold these doctrines say, you know, they really originate in their clarity and their uh, explication with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It's really Paul's writings in Ephesians and Romans that give us the best insights into these things. So we're going to look at that uh, tonight, the doctrines of election and predestination. I'm going to begin with a quote. We're really just following the Institutes, Calvin's Institutes, um, Book 3. Chapters 21 through 24, that's where he writes on election and predestination. But I'm going to begin with uh, one of his comments, commentary on Ephesians, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is what he said. Where are the men who dread and avoid the doctrine of predestination as an inextricable labyrinth, who believe it to be useless and almost dangerous? No doctrine is more useful, provided it be handled in the proper and cautious manner, of which Paul gives us an example when he presents it as an illustration of the infinite goodness of God and employs it as an excitement to gratitude. This is the true fountain from which we must draw our knowledge of the divine mercy. If men should evade every other argument, election shuts their mouth so that they dare not and cannot claim anything for themselves. But let us remember the purpose for which Paul reasons about predestination, lest by reasoning with any other view we fall into dangerous errors. Do you see the, the careful balance in which he approaches this thing? First of all, he, say, he almost rebukes people who don't want to talk about it. Where are they? Bring them on. Let's, let's get them out here so that we can correct their error. We need to talk about this. We need to understand it. It's in the Bible. So we shouldn't dread or avoid this doctrine. But neither should we go beyond what the Lord has given, reasoning with any other view we might fall into dangerous errors. Yes, Susan, by the way. meant by any other view? I could see that it might be used to foster um, yeah. an exaggerated sense of our own importance or self-righteousness. Is that what other... Well, we'll talk about that. 
Probably the most common one we're going to deal with tonight is the view that predestination is based on foreknowledge as defined by God knowing things about us ahead of time and based on those things choosing us and not others. That's probably the most common other view and, and, Paul, and sorry, Calvin's going to do a great deal of work to refute that. It's probably the most common other view, but there are many other views. Thank you for that question. All right, so we're looking at now following the Institutes. Uh, by that I mean uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which came out in multiple different editions, each one uh, an improvement on the last, an enlargement. He actually moves election and predestination to later in the book as he, as he develops it. Uh, it was at one point earlier in the decrees, like in, in creation, and then he moves it into the way by which we receive the grace of God in Christ, into the salvation soteriology. So he just thinks it's a better way to, uh, to handle it. And so we're looking at that now. So it institutes book three and then chapters 21. Uh, really, we're going to just focus on chapters 21 and 22 tonight. We don't have enough time for more. And he begins uh, this heading, eternal election by which God has predestined some to salvation and others to destruction. That's the heading of the, uh, the chapter. And uh, then the uh, editors give us this kind of summation of the first four uh, subsections with this title. The importance of predestination excludes both presumption and reticence in speaking of it. So the heading uh, under that, Necessity and Beneficial Effect of the Doctrine of Election and the Danger of Curiosity. Calvin writes this, In actual fact, the covenant of life is not preached equally among all men. And among those to whom it is preached, it does not gain the same acceptance either constantly or in equal degree. In this diversity, the wonderful depth of God's judgment is made known. For there is no doubt that this variety also serves the decision of God's eternal election. If it is plain that it comes to pass by God's bidding that salvation is freely offered some, while others are barred from access to it, at once great and difficult questions spring up, explicable only when reverent minds regard as settled what they may suitably hold concerning election and predestination. Now, let me just put all of that in some simple terms. It's amazing to me that he begins here. These are his first words in the Institutes on election and predestination. What is the topic? You know what the topic is? What about those who have never heard the gospel? That's how he starts. Look again at the words. In actual fact, the covenant of life. Take those, that phrase out and put the gospel in there. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the gospel. In actual fact, the gospel is not preached equally among all men. What is he saying? Not everybody gets it. Not everybody hears. People can live, grow up, you know, born, grow up, die, never heard the gospel. Never. I say to you, there is no good Arminian explanation for that. Not a single one. I've heard them all. They just can't come up with a good answer for it. You know, the, the answer you hear the most common is it's the church's fault, so we need more missionaries, so get going. That's the most common answer. I've heard it time and time again. It's usually at, you know, those missionary things where they come and you feel terribly guilty about the fact that you're not a missionary and, you know, you think about the missionary call and all that's because those who haven't heard it, and it's our fault that they haven't heard. But do you realize how that falls apart? I mean, it really does fall apart. How does it fall apart? Well, let me tell you how it falls apart. All right, the gospel comes from where? Where did it come? Where did the gospel, the message of the gospel come from? From, from the Bible, from God. God is God breathed. God put it together. What's his intention? He wants to seek and save the lost, right? He wants to save people thereby. I tell you, the chain's only as strong as its weakest link. 
Suppose he crafts this beautiful gospel with the blood of Jesus and all that and then entrusts it to pathetic people like us who don't really care and who are indifferent and all that and who fail time and time and time again. Which, friends, we do. I tell you, in all lies, uh, theological lies, there's a kernel of truth. Has the church failed? You better believe it. I mean, let's forget the church. How about you? Have you failed? <laughs> let's just make it real personal. Do you feel like you've done everything in evangelism and missions you should have done? No, no one can ever feel that. But I say to you, it's just that's not what's happened here. Calvin just goes above all that. And he says, you know the reason why? It must be rooted in the eternal decrees of God. Not everybody has equal access to the gospel because God has not decreed that everybody have equal access to the gospel. Other than that, I tell you there's a significant problem on the day of Pentecost, beginning of the church. I've said this before. You look at that. I think that was a red-letter day. What do you think? I think it was a great day. I actually think you could argue it was the greatest day in church history. Church had its origin that day. The Holy Spirit came. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? Flooded out into the streets and the apostles stood there and boldly preached the gospel. How did it go? Very well. 3,000 people were added to their number. Indications are in the text that they were baptized that same day. That is a busy day. I mean, if you have 12 apostles, there's just a, there's just a lot of work to be done. You want to be sure that they're genuine believers? I think they were Baptists back then, friends. I mean, they wanted to be sure they were genuine converts. So it would take some time. Tell me about your story. What, you know, whatever you really believe in Jesus and baptize him, right? I mean, they all went to bed exhausted but happy. But down comes an angel saying, you have failed. At another part of the world, there are people who have never heard the gospel. What is the matter with you? You have no right to be going to bed. Get up. Well, I think they wouldn't mind getting up, but where are they going to go? Judea or Samaria, right? They're not going to be able to get to the ends of the earth that day. There's only so much you can do in 24 hours. The argument just falls apart. The fact of the matter is, the reason they haven't heard is that God has willed that they not hear. And that's where you get... And I just find this whole thing remarkable that this is where he begins. He begins with, what about those who haven't heard the gospel? And he goes beyond that. He goes uh, that among those who have heard, it doesn't make equal progress. Some people hear and reject. Some people hear and you know, kind of accept. Some people hear and are on fire with it. There's just a different level of response. Again, Calvin ascribes that to the wonderful depth of God's judgment. That's what he's saying here. For there is no doubt that this variety also serves the decision of God's eternal election. Some are elect and some aren't. That's why the gospel does better with some people than it does with others. That's what he's saying. So, in other words, the facts that, number one, not everyone hears the gospel, and number two, not everyone who hears the gospel believes can only be satisfactorily explained by God's decree. Right understanding of the roots of our own salvation then depends upon dealing with the issues of election and predestination. In other words, how did you get to be saved? How is it that you're in Christ? Well, you don't need Calvin to tell you that. Let's just go to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 says, it is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. That settles it for me. Paul tells me why I'm in Jesus. I'm in Jesus because of him, because of God, ultimately. That's what he's saying. But this is what Calvin writes. We shall never be clearly persuaded, as we ought to be, that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know his eternal election, which illumines God's grace by this contrast, that he does not indiscriminately adopt all into the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to others. You know, therein lies the rub. Let's be honest. It's the fact that God himself does different things for people. 
on the issue of salvation. That's the rub. Let's go right to what people find most offensive. That God doesn't do equally for everybody. Bothers people. It doesn't make much sense. Why would God do something for this person that he doesn't do for that? And that's a problem. The uh, more Arminian or kind of man-centered view is that God really desires to do the same thing for everybody. He does the exact same thing for everybody. Problem is that he has entrusted us the ministry of reconciliation. We keep messing up. He really intends for everybody to be treated equally the same. Uh, but we're, we're making distinctions and we're not doing everything that we ought to. We don't want to go to this or that country, etc. And so in that regard, you know, you know, he's saying God does not indiscriminately adopt uh, all into the hope of salvation. Excuse me. Yes. If someone raises that as an objection to predestination, I guess the answer I've always thought to give was, do you want salvation? You may have it on the grounds that even their desire for it is indication that the Holy Spirit is drawing them. Susan, I think it is. I mean, I say it is for me. I believe that I wouldn't want Jesus if he hadn't wanted me first. I believe he... Whoever wants it can have it. Bottom line, that's what I say. And frankly, what you're getting at is the whole answer of Romans 10. The whole answer of this, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is the full answer from God. Romans 9, strong on sovereignty. Romans 10, strong on... If you want it, take it. It's not hard. You don't have to go up to the heavens. You don't have to go down to the depths. The word's near you. It's in your mouth. We proclaimed. They all heard, didn't they? But then they didn't all accept. Why not? Paul's answer is that they weren't all elect. That's his answer. But the point is, like, you want to, you want to be elect? Then believe. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, you're, we're holding you out. We're just preaching the gospel. And we don't do that, you know, say, I, you know, I don't mind teaching. I, I'm happy to teach on elect, but every Sunday I hold the gospel message out. Every single Sunday. I don't mention election at that moment. I wouldn't be against it because I think people ought to know. I don't think it's bad for non-Christians to know the doctrine of election. They do. Mark Twain knew it. You know, pre ordained he called it, something like that. You know, he was always messing with things. But, you know, the, the bottom line is they certainly know about it. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it. Frankly, I get less and less embarrassed the more I read Calvin. He helps me not to be embarrassed. You know, you should be ashamed of being ashamed. That's really what he's getting at. We should never be ashamed of a biblical doctrine. Let's keep going, guys. There's just so many good things here. And I am so glad you guys are so engaged and excited, because I am too. True humility, then, in salvation also totally depends on understanding election and predestination. If, to make it clear that our salvation comes about solely from God's mere generosity, we must be called back to the course of election, those who wish to get rid of all this are obscuring as maliciously as they can what ought to have been gloriously and vociferously proclaimed, listen to this, and they tear humility up by the very roots. Very, very strong statement. In effect, humility then is a gentle plant with a kind of a fragile root system. And when you attack doctrine, the doctrine of election and predestination, you rip it up. You rip it up. Well, what then? I mean, what do we mean? That's just metaphorical language. What do we mean by we rip up humility by its very roots? What's left when humility is gone? Uh, yeah. So it's yeah, pride, arrogance. You rip up humility by its very roots, you're proud. Prideful. That's, what, that's really what it is. Thus it is wrong to refuse to teach on election and predestination. They who shut the gates that no one uh, may dare seek a taste of this doctrine, wrong men, no less than they do God. For neither will anything else suffice to make us humble as we ought to be. Nor shall we otherwise sincerely feel how much we are obligated to God. So you're already starting to see some of the in inducements and the benefits. It really does humble you. 
And it really does make you thankful. There's a deep gratitude that comes from these things and a deep humility that comes from it. On the other hand, no doctrine gives, such, gives us such boldness and confidence as these twin doctrines of election and predestination. Uh, again, a quote, as, as Christ teaches, here is our only ground for firmness and confidence. So it's a different theme. In order to free us of all fear and render us victorious amid so many dangers, snares, and mortal struggles, he promises that whatever the Father has entrusted into his keeping will be safe. He's quoting John 10 here. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Thus, we have three beautiful benefits to election and predestination that flow. First of all, by these doctrines, God is most glorified. Secondly, by these doctrines, we are most humbled. And thirdly, by these doctrines, we are most secure. And I say that all three of these things are impugned if you go a different direction on the origin of our salvation. If you have a more man-centered origin, God will be deprived in some way of his glory. We will become proud or arrogant and we will not be secure. And if you want any evidence of the lack of security, just read some of of, uh, Wesley's views on, on the security of the believer of which he gives none. Uh, we have uh, the one security we have as believers is Jesus won't leave us. Okay, you know that, but we're never sure whether we're going to leave Jesus. And so you've got to stay with him. You've got to stay with Jesus or else you'll be lost. Even weirder, in my opinion, um, they teach something called Wesleyan perfectionism or entire sanctification that you can actually on earth while you live on earth, be morally blameless in God's sight. You can be perfect, like heaven level perfect. What's weird about that? Well, you can go from that status and end up in hell anyway. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you, you, can, you, can be, you can walk in perfection and still end up being lost in the end. So for me, I say that there is no security given to a man-centered system. There can be none. As a matter of fact, they don't mean to give any. They think that if you give this, that you'll have moral freedom and decay, frankly. Corruption comes from it that it results in a, in a laissez-faire kind of attitude. You don't really care how you live. You know, you're once saved, always saved. doesn't matter how you live. And I think it's, it's a concern. But I don't think those people really understand the gospel. All right, so these are the benefits that come from it. And just meditate on that. Are those genuine benefits? Are these real gems theologically? God is most glorified. We are most humbled. We are most secure. Is there any value that comes from that? Absolutely. This greatly glorifies God that God chooses without any reference whatsoever to the creature. He's not scouring the creature to find something in you. He just chooses you because of something inside you, inside him, not inside you. And, and that is very humbling. At that point, you cease scouring yourself to find, you know, well, at least there's this good thing about me. You know, and then you look horizontally to other saved people and you realize they're saved the exact same way as you and you're no better than them. And even as you look to those that are are not yet saved, you realize you're no better than them either, except that God has saved you. That's the only difference. God has worked grace in you. So those that would say, strangely, the opposite, that this view makes you arrogant and puffed up, God chose me. It's like, yeah, but on what basis? (laughs) On what basis? Always, always, in spite of, never, never because of. You know, the things that I had to offer were those things that would have repulsed him from me, not those things that would have attracted. And then finally, we are most secure. And I can't even tell you the value of that security completely. I just, how valuable is it to know that you will finally be saved in the end? 
and with that solid ground under your feet. Remember how Paul talks about the, uh, the armor of God and you've got the feet fitted for, you know, ready to fight, basically. The idea is, you know, what, what kind of ground is under your feet? What kind of terrain and what kind of certitude, can, uh, you know, do you have as you take your stand against the world of flesh and the devil? This gives you absolute certitude. Fight sin because you're going to win. Fight sin because it's the very thing God saved you for. That's a beautiful thing. This kind of security is so, so vital. And it's, it's a very, I think, a very, um, I, I don't say complicated, but it's not an easy thing, this assurance. You know, I had somebody come up after uh, I preached on Sunday and said, now, are you saying that you can lose your salvation? Mm-hmm. And people ask him, we're right in Hebrews. This is exactly the kind of question people are going to ask. Good, we're preaching well. When people come and say, do you think you can lose your salvation? Why do you say that? Well, you mentioned apostasy. I didn't mention it. The text mentioned it. All right. (laughs) But what it said is, you know, take care that no one apostatizes. That's the whole thing. I just believe that there is a category of people that take the warnings of Hebrews seriously. You know what you call them? The elect. They take the warnings seriously. And what do they do? They walk that narrow path that Jesus described that leads to heaven. And they find out that it actually is, in fact, hard for the righteous to be saved. It's a hard journey. But they keep making that journey. And they keep fighting. And they know that they're going to win in the end. That's the real assurance. It's not assurance so that you can go sin as much as you want and still end up in heaven. It's got nothing to do with that. A genuine assurance. All right, these are valuable things. Therefore, it's worth studying. All right, however, for all of that, this is typical Calvin now. He issues a warning to those who seek to inquire deeply about this doctrine. He gives them a warning. First, then, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they are penetrating the sacred precincts of divine wisdom. If anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity, and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. For it is not right for man unrestrainedly to search out things that the Lord has willed to be hid in himself and to unfold from eternity itself the sublimest wisdom which he would have us revere but not understand that through this he should also fill us with wonder. See that word wonder. Talk about that in a minute. He has set forth by his word the secrets of his will that he has decided to reveal to us. These he decided to reveal insofar as he foresaw that they would concern us and benefit us. So, in other words, he's told us as much as we need. Everything he's told us, he thought we needed to know. Therefore, we should study them, right? By the way, it was uh, Philip Melanchthon who was writing Calvin on this and saying, why do you talk so much about predestination? It's better not to mention it. And so I think actually it was Melanchthon who was really, in many respects, a kind of a soul brother with Calvin. They were humanists who loved the Reformation and all that, but Melanchthon a little squeamish on this. And uh, Calvin, in effect, to some degree rebuking him, you know, and saying, we need to give them everything God's given us. All right? But it should still fill us with wonder. Why do we say wonder? Because there's just depths here that we will never fully understand. We will never really fully get it all. We can't. There are limits to it. And so we ought not to be dogmatic about those things, but instead just say, I don't know, but there's just wonder here. And so he's told us what would benefit us and what is concerning us. So doctrine and predestination, this must be obvious to all of you, ought to be sought in Scripture only. Okay, what would the alternative be? (laughs) I, you know what, the, the, the sense that the Holy Spirit is telling you directly things about 
predestination? Be afraid. Be very afraid. Yes. Well, actually, that was a concern I had with mm-hmm. Calvin's first quote, where, which I said, in actual fact, the covenant of life is not preached equally among men. Right. It seemed that he was justifying it based on what we see versus yeah. Scripture. And um, my response to that is, how do I know how active the Holy Spirit is in some of these closed countries? How does he know? And uh, so anyway, that seemed like that was a concern I had about what he was doing. Mm-hmm. He was looking at evidence to substantiate. Yeah, it's a complicated question. The fact is that there is an intimate connection between everyday life, our physical lives, and Scripture. I say that the two of them are absolutely interrelated, and without the one, the other is unintelligible. They, they just are. I mean, you take a command like be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. All those words have meaning only because of experiences with humility and gentleness and patience right. and love. So, I mean, they just totally go together. Concerning those that have never heard, I don't know, I suppose we could debate how does Calvin know that there are people who have never heard. I think we all kind of know that. I don't, I don't really know. I, uh, it seems to me. Um, that there must be some people that haven't heard. The scripture does say those who were not told about him will hear and those who have not heard will understand. So there's at least some category of people Paul was trying to reach, you know, uh, et cetera. But it's a valid point. We always want to put scripture first. Um, however, these, the actual details of predestination, when it happened, what it entailed, aspects of it, they must come from scripture. I think that's the point that Calvin's making here. And so Calvin writes this, the moment we exceed the bounds of the word, our course is outside the pathway. Oh, by the way, one little comment I just felt led at that moment to say, we would never say that it was permissible not to preach the gospel because God had willed some not to hear. That doesn't work. I mean, that's ridiculous. We're commanded by Jesus to tell as many people as we can, go into all creation and preach the gospel. If, I, if you push me a little further, I would say God has also built in a certain inefficiency so that every generation that he intended to be born would be born. All right, so what is that inefficiency? Committing to us the ministry of reconciliation <laughs> and knowing that we will not be faithful and that we will be fits and starts and sporadic and some days do good things and some days not. I've done that myself. Haven't you failed to share the gospel with somebody, felt guilty about it, resolved to do better, and the next day did share with somebody? I think God gave up the first guy to get the second or lady, whatever. You see what I'm saying? And it's like, all right, he knows we're not going to be 100% faithful in our lives. It's a mystery. But it never excuses our failures. We never say, well, thereby we can, you know, ratchet it down. We talk too much about evangelism missions in this church anyway. So, you know, I mean, that would never happen, et cetera. Okay, let's move on. All right, the moment we exceed the bounds of the word, our course is outside the pathway and in darkness. And that, that there we must repeatedly wander, slip, and stumble. Let this, therefore, first of all be before our eyes to seek any other knowledge of predestination than what the word of God discloses is not less insane than if one should purpose to walk in a pathless waste or to see in darkness. And let us not be ashamed to be ignorant of something in this matter, wherein there is a certain learned ignorance. That's an amazing expression there. Learned ignorance. In other words, those that are really learned know how ignorant they are. All right. Rather, let us willingly refrain from inquiring into a kind of knowledge, the ardent desire for which is both foolish and dangerous, nay, even deadly. I can't tell you how many times I bumped into, I wrote my dissertation on Calvin, how many times I bumped into these kinds of words from him. He is just, just adamant that we not go beyond Scripture. 
that we not that we not uh, speculate. I think there were just a lot of speculators back then. You know, the, how many angels on the head of a pin? That was all from the schoolmen, so to speak, what, you know, and the Sorbonne and all that. I mean, he probably was educated with all that kind of junk. And he's like, we're not doing that. We're not trying to speculate. We're just trying to take passages of Scripture and understand them phrase by phrase. That's all. We're not going beyond it. That's what he was seeking to do. Second danger, though, anxious silence about the doctrine of election. So there's some that just run carefree into, into predestination election and blissfully, confidently, heedlessly rummaging around in there. And he says they're going to end up in a labyrinth from which there's no escape. They're arrogant. They don't get it. They don't see how humble they should be and how scriptural they should be. But the opposite error is a problem too. Anxious silence. This is your Philip Melanchthon here about the doctrine of election. Some people wishing to avoid extremes and controversies avoid all mention of predestination. Could that be a percentage of pastors in America? I don't know. I mean, I wonder how many of them, if you ask them, do you believe in predestination? Would say, you know, I do. How can I not? It's mentioned in the Bible. I think it's there anyway. Someone told me in seminary it's, it, was, it was there. Said, well, do you ever preach it? Why in the world would I want to do that? You know, so Calvin's addressing that right here. I'm sorry, go ahead, Tom. What were you going to say? They keep quiet about it. They do. They keep quiet about it. One of the questionable benefits of topical preaching. Um, you never have to preach on this. So, Calvin wrote this. There are others who, wishing to cure this evil, the evil of you know speculation, etc., all but require that every mention of predestination be buried. Indeed, they teach us to avoid any question of it as we would a reef. You're going you're gonna to shipwreck on this one. Let's stay away from it. But this is every bit as extreme as those who go beyond the scriptural bounds into speculation. For scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in scripture lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what is in any way profitable to suppress. So what he's saying here is, you know, we, we've, been, we've been given guidelines by God and we're not to violate either, either of those guardrails, not to say any less or any more about predestination than God wills. That's what he's getting at here. So, the best verse on this balance probably is Deuteronomy 29, 29, which you've heard. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. Predestination is in the set of the things revealed. It is. Why individual people were predestined is not. God will never tell us why. That there is a reason why, I think, is beyond question because God is a reasonable being. You get hints of it in 1 Corinthians 1 where he says, look at what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many were of noble birth or influential. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So in other words, almost like kind of draft picks. And God picked a lot of those kind of people for a reason. To humble the things that are so that, and to nullify them so that, you know, every mouth would be silenced and we would boast in God. So he has his reason for picking people, but he's not going to tell us ever, except these general senses. So the things revealed, predestination, election. 
Okay? Those things that are not revealed, the secret things, belong to the Lord. They are His and they're not for us. So some people would question, I think, how far, let's say, some of the Puritan theologians went in the ordering of the decrees like infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. I'm not sure whether that would violate this here or not. It may. I don't know. Um, you know, they really worked hard, like William Perkins and all that, on the order. Did God first decree to create and then to allow fall or the, the first decree to create, a, you know, to allow fall and then to create in order to get the fall he wanted? You know, that's kind of how it works. Um, some, you almost could get the sense where Calvin's like, stop, stop. You know, we don't, we don't know. And it just goes so far beyond any text of Scripture. There is no text of Scripture here that we're dealing with. It's all logic. Be careful not to do that. But I don't know that I can say that because it happened after Calvin and we don't know. So here I'm speculating about Calvin. So anyway, moving on. All right, the alleged peril in the doctrine is therefore dismissed. Those who mock the doctrines of election and predestination will mock any meaty doctrine of the word, said Calvin, like the Trinity. Calvin's bold in answering, no, he says, God's truth is so powerful both in this respect and in every other that it has nothing to fear from the evil speaking of wicked men. People will slander it, but why should that stop us? And I ask you a bigger question, if you know anything about church history. Is there any significant doctrine in the Bible that has not been slandered or misunderstood or false taught on at some point? Satan's in the business of sowing weeds among the wheat. It's what he does. So basically, like, there's no part of the body that's completely free from disease, that every part of the human body there's someone in the world today that's suffering from a disease on that part of the body you know and so it is the body of doctrines we receive at some point in history some questions have been brought up about that doctrine doesn't prove a thing just proves that there's a satan is what it proves so calvin's general rule he says then is i desire only to have them generally admit that we should not investigate what the lord has left hidden in secret and that we should not neglect what he has brought out into the open so that we may not be convicted of excessive curiosity on the one hand or of excessive ingratitude on the other. Notice Calvin's confidence in the, in the canon here, the 66 books of the Bible. It's just how it needs to be. There don't, there don't need to be 67 books of the Bible and there don't need to be 65. Each of the books has precisely the number of chapters it needs to have, no more, no less. We have a perfect scripture from God. And everything in it should be our business the rest of our lives. Now, any of you reading through the Bible and you realize that's a lifetime work. There's a lot in there. There's more than you thought. We'll be at this our whole lives. So God's given us a lot. But we're not to go beyond what's written. We are to, and the scripture's enough. And this is the point he's making here. Everything given is necessary. There's no extra stuff. Nothing's beyond. There's no, there's no too much redundancy. Parenthetically, just in terms of a brother in Christ who, you know, we could feel we don't have the right to carry his shoes, and that's fine. But if I were to have an opportunity to sit down with Calvin, I'd ask, why did you ignore the book of Revelation? That's probably the question that I would ask the most, which he did just about. He mentions it in Psychopanicia, which is a, a little tract on a treatise on uh, soul sleep, and then almost doesn't mention it again, doesn't refer to it in his, in his letters, in his tracts. He doesn't refer to it as cross-references hardly ever. And yet he, in his listing of canonical books, and there were some people in the 16th century that questioned whether a book should be in the canon or not. Luther did that with the book of James because it was incredibly inconvenient when James said we're justified by works. You know, and he was like, it's an epistle of straw. And he, you know, he sticks it, you know. So there was a lot of that humanistic kind of thinking that was wrong. I think Luther was wrong in that point. Calvin never did that. He accepted all 27 books. Revelation's right in there. My feeling on Calvin is he just didn't know what to do with Revelation. 
There was just so much ardent speculation going on in the book of Revelation. There were a lot of millennial people in the 16th century. And he just wanted to stay away from that stuff entirely. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go my usual way. I'm going to be very logical. I'm going to read this. I'm going to give good exegesis here on Revelation, whatever, whatever. Chapters 10 through 17 or something. It's like, and he felt, I'm guessing here, he felt he couldn't do it. And so he decided not to do much uh, with the book of Revelation. It's interesting. But in general, what he's saying is everything God's told us, we need to take it seriously and deal with it, etc. It's hard to fault the guy who wrote commentaries, very careful commentaries on three quarters of the Bible. All right, you know, it's like, you know, maybe given him out of time, he would have done it. He would have done it. But I don't think so. He had the chance. He went from Second John to an Old Testament book, um, and, you know, a minor prophet. So uh, I think he purposely said, look, uh, we're moving away. All right. I love this, and this is interesting. Uh, top of page five. Some theologians think they are wiser than God in moderation. I already commented on this, but I think this is probably... Yeah, I don't think Calvin ever meant anything to be humorous, but I find this humorous. Um, that's, that's mean. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sure he had a wonderful sense of humor. I don't know. Arrogantly, they accuse... Yeah, he was in pain, but Luther was in pain too, and Luther was a really funny guy. I mean, he really was. I mean, I'd rather spend an evening with Luther than Calvin, or I'd rather sit at Calvin's feet than at Luther's feet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Best of all, be Spurgeon, though. That's a fun night. I mean, a fun night with Spurgeon. That's, a, that's probably my favorite guy from church history to spend an evening with. You'd be, you'd be rolling on the floor. And, in, you know, edified, too, while you're rolling on the floor. Agar- arrogantly, it says, they accuse God indirectly, indirectly of stupid thoughtlessness, as if he had not foreseen the peril that they feel that they have wisely met. All right? Whoever then heaps odium upon the doctrine of predestination openly reproaches God. As if, I like this, he had unadvisedly let slip something hurtful to the church. (laughs) Shouldn't have done it, wish I hadn't. But, you know, we all have bad moments like that. We let things slip and wish we hadn't said it. You know, um, that's about what Calvin's ridiculing that view. God didn't let it slip. No, he had Paul write it in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. That's what. And that's what he's getting at here. All right, now let's talk about predestination defined and explained in relation to the Israelite nation and individuals. All right, predestination for knowledge of God with the election of Israel. A common dodge, friends, on this topic, as I already mentioned this, is to make God's election and predestination subservient to his foreknowledge. They argue this way, God knew ahead of time who would believe in Jesus and he chose them ahead of time based on that foreknowledge. Parenthetically, in one sense this might make sense because it is the first statement given in Romans 8. Those whom God foreknew, it says, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So it's like, I'm not making this up. Foreknowledge does pre, uh, precede uh, predestination. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, in my personal opinion, I think we have to know that there's a difference between those whom God foreknew and foreknowing things about people. There's just a distinction between those two. In Romans 8, it's always people he foreknows, not facts about people like your name or your social security number or an attribute of your soul. He's not foreknowing things about you. He's foreknowing you. And then you start looking at other language like, you know, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. What will he tell them plainly? I never knew you. What do you mean? I don't, you don't know anything about me? Oh, no, I, have everything. I know everything about you. I know more about you than your mother. I know more about you than you know. I know every word you've ever spoken, the ones you forgot. I know everything about you, but that's not what I'm talking about. I never knew you. What does that mean? I never chose you is what it means. I never chose you. 
And I think it really has to do with election. I didn't know you like in a husband and wife sort of sense. Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, as it says in uh, Genesis 4. To know in a covenantal sense, a covenantal God and his bride sense, I never knew you that way. And so I think that's really what he's getting at here. It's not knowledge about them. God has all knowledge about. It's knowledge of people specifically. Yes, Susan. Um, Is there something wrong with this possibility that God, it wasn't just that he knew ahead of time who would believe in Jesus, but he created us in such a way that we would respond to Jesus. Well, I... I would add just one little prefix. He recreated you so that you would respond. I think that's what regeneration is. Isn't that what the doctrine of regeneration is? It's a new genesis, a new creation. You're made a new creation. Not not that there was something intrinsic in your old creation nature. Nothing. Dead in transgressions and sins. But God spoke life where there was death. He spoke light where there was darkness. He spoke life in in the midst of, of nothingness. He just speaks and you respond. Yes. Just put a little re before that, yeah, okay. not, not in the original creation. Yes. Well, the best argument I've heard is that his foreknowledge is related to his general counsel, Acts 2.23, which determines foreknowledge and counsel of God. Okay. And if you look at the Greek construction, that's what it says. That's great. That's great. Thing. And that's exactly where Calvin's going to go. I'm going to, if, if I might, just piggyback on what you said and read Calvin's definition of foreknowledge. All right, let's see what he said. When we attribute foreknowledge to God, we mean that all things always were and perpetually remain under his eyes so that to his knowledge there is nothing future or past, but all things are present. And they are present in such a way that he not only conceives them through ideas, as we have before us those things which our mind remember, but he truly looks upon them and discerns them as things placed before him. And this foreknowledge is extended throughout the universe to every creature. So he is intimately, completely knowing everything all at once. And, And I think we go beyond that. He knows what's best. Does that make sense? He has thought about the universe in all of its potentialities and all of its like decision tree. You know what I'm saying? Branching out the decision tree. And he's been down every path, every decision tree path and rejected, rejected, rejected. And then this is what we have. This one right here. This is why some Calvinists speak of the best possible world. We're living right now in the best possible world. And you're like, how could that even be? Well, it's the best possible world to achieve God's ends. And what are God's ends? That he would be glorified in the redemption of sinners like us. And so everything is as it should be to achieve that end. That'll fry your noodle. Go home and think about that. Is this, in fact, the best possible world? But think of the alternative. Let's say it isn't. What are you saying there about God's foreknowledge and his sovereignty? What are you saying? You know, if you follow back from that, eventually you end up, you know, in trouble. You end up in open theism, frankly. You end up like God doesn't know what's coming, but he sure does love us a lot. And, and he'll help us as best he can. And, you know, that's, what you, that's where you, really where you end up. So it's like, mm, I guess if the, alternate, the other way is we end up best possible worlds, I think this is probably the best possible world. God knows exactly what he's doing. Foreknowledge. But I'm going to go even beyond a little what Calvin said. I think it really is covenant knowledge. I think it's like a marriage, that God knows us individually like a husband knows a wife. He chooses us. Like it says in Amos, you only have I known among all the nations of the earth. And, you know, and again, that statement makes no sense. He's talking to Israel. It makes no sense if it, if it means knowledge about. I mean, seriously, if that's what knowledge means, knowledge about, what is God saying? It's like, I, you know, I know the Jews, but I don't know that much about the Moabites. I, you know, the Greeks are just a complete mystery to me, what they're doing. It's like nothing's a mystery to God. He knows about everything. 
but you only have I known among all the families of the earth. You're the only nation I chose. And he says that openly in Deuteronomy, that God chose them out of all the families of the earth to be his treasured possession, etc. All right, so what's Calvin's definition then of predestination? Well, we call predestination God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each man. For all are not created in equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. That's right there, a very plain description of double predestination. Therefore, as any man has been created to one or the other of these ends, we speak of him as predestined to life or death. Now, just so you know, etymologically, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, the word predestination or predestined is pro-orizzo. And the word orizzo, from which we get horizon, is used in the Old Testament, Greek translation of the Old Testament, to speak of boundary lines. Basically, it's a boundary line, like it's used a lot in the book of, uh, of um, Joshua, when it talk, talked about the boundary lines of each of the tribes, the boundary line of the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Dan or Issachar. You, know, you remember how the last third of the book of Joshua is all boundary lines, you know, where the line ran. It ran, ran by the oaks of the trees, a tree of Mamre, and it went down by the great sea, and it went over here, you know, following the line. And you could see why the nation of Israel would need a real clear description of all that. We want to know whose is what, so that we're not encroaching. And they would put, I think, boundary markers. And remember how in Proverbs it talks about the wickedness of moving a boundary marker. I mean, you're really stealing somebody's real estate at that point, their inheritance, boundary lines. So if you look at the cover of your handout today, um, I chose this picture from some, who knows who takes these pictures. You go to Google and you say, this is what I want, and that's what I want. What did I want? I wanted a fence. All right, that's what I wanted. I wanted a boundary line. It's kind of dark, sorry about that. But that's, you know, one of those stone fences, etc. And I chose Psalm 16.6. And that is, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. My question is, how did the boundary lines fall for David? Where did they end up? How do, who decided where they ended up? And, and basically, pro Orizzo, God set his boundary lines beforehand, before he was born. God set up his boundary lines, and David is happy with his boundary lines. He's satisfied with them. That's what literally etymologically what the word pro-orizzo means, to have your boundary lines set for you before you're born. And, and again, you see the, the, the beauty of that and, and the challenge to us, too. We like to be, like, without borders. You know what I'm saying? Free agents, like a gas, I guess, or something. I don't know what. You know, <laughs> moving here and there. That, is that the universe the way you see it in Scripture? I don't think so. I think there's all kinds of hierarchical arrangements and thrones and principalities and arrangements and jurisdictions and all kinds of stuff going on like that. It's just the way it is. Think about uh, James and John's mother coming to Jesus. Remember the request? Grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus said to them, let's get mom aside, Thanks, Mom. Have a good day. We know who's really pretty. You ought to just come yourself next time and don't get Mom to do it, okay? He says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they said. They didn't know that either, but anyway. We can, they said. Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Do you get the sense that heaven's willy-nilly or very carefully prepared? I think there are seats and they are prepared. Yes, go ahead. But I kind of listen to your question on that, which is when people speak of predestination, as Calvin says, speaking of predestination actually also is talking about that plan he has for the life of every believer. 
Mm -hmm. It's more than are you going to be chosen or not for salvation. It's what the rest of your life is going to be like, as in Ephesians two ten. Mm -hmm. That seems to be yeah. is that part of the yeah. predestination argument? Yeah, I think so. I mean. Let's look at the definition again. We call predestination God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he will to become of each man. That's pretty general. Now, he goes on from there into salvation, but yeah, it's predestination uh, for everything. I mean, that's what it says in Ephesians 1 anyway, isn't it? It says, in him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything after the counsel of his will. It's not just a few things, all of it. Yes? And the mystery of all that is how you have free decisions, choices to make, how all that works. It's a mystery. And this is where the wonder of it all comes. You know, the wonder of it all. We're not fatalists. The problem with fatalism as opposed to predestination, fatalism is impersonal. This is very personal. It's as personal as it could ever be. Someone has thought about you and has decided this is for you. It's like a gift handed to you like at Christmas or your birthday from a loved one. And before they open it up, before you open it up, just say, I want you to know, I've been thinking about you for a year and praying and thinking, and I think this is the best gift I've ever given you. I think it's the most appropriate gift I could ever give you. Well, wouldn't you be really interested in what's inside that package? Because the gift at that point is, an, is like an explication of the relationship, of what they think about you, what they think you'll need or what would be good for you. That's what predestination is to me. It's very personal. God's thought about me and has chosen some boundary lines for me. And I am to be satisfied with those boundary lines and not try to, you know, you know, push them or be dissatisfied with them, but to find out what they are and to embrace them and, and say with David, we're all going to say it, every last one of us in heaven, we're going to get to heaven. We're going to say the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You're going to say that. All of you are. Look forward to that. Be happy. Because God has thought about you personally, by name, and he's got a place for you. And that's awesome to me. It's a beautiful thing. It's awesome. So at any rate. Uh, where are we at? Okay, we've got about six minutes. God's predestination extends to uh, both to individuals and to whole nations. Deuteronomy 32, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. So it's interesting here. And, you know, he says it in the beginning of Deuteronomy. If you look at the beginning of Deuteronomy, he says to the Jews, do not go through the land of the Moabites or the Ammonites or whatever, because I have given, or, or the Edomites, I have given the hill country of Seir to Esau as his possession. It's not yours. Don't take it or I'm going to whack you. You know? <laughs> it, you know, he basically says that's their promised land. It's really a fascinating thing. It's like that's where I want them to live. And it isn't yours. I have a different place for you. So Deuteronomy is saying that when he thought about every nation, he allotted them their boundaries based on what he was going to do with his own inheritance, namely the Jews. And so Paul says this, you know, from one man he made, made every nation of men. He determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. That's Acts 17. So God's figured it all out, the nations. Again, a great mystery because he totally slams the Chaldeans and any tyrant, oppressor, invader type who comes and, and takes from unwalled villages and farms what doesn't belong to them and builds a realm by robbery and unjust gain. 
Has that ever happened in human history? Powerful military people kind of sweeping across boundaries and taking what didn't belong to them? That is human history, friends. I don't know what else it would be. That's it. And so God judges them for it. How do you put it all together? Here's wonder and mystery. I don't really know. It's a, it's a mystery. But God ordains things for nations and for individuals. God's election of Israel as a nation then is well attested to in Israel. God chose Israel. Deuteronomy 4.37 says, Because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. So there it is. He chose them. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all people. Peoples, sorry. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It was just because he loved you. You know, that's just an amazing thing. Don't think it was something in you. <laughs> I mean, and, and there are just 20 different ways scripture tells you that. But this one, it just has to do with numerousness. You know, like it's not because you were so numerous. You really weren't. And it sure isn't because you were so wonderful. Okay, look at Deuteronomy 9, 6, uh, two verses down. Understand then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you're a stiff-necked people. All right, I find that fascinating. It's like, I know you, I know you really well, and it sure isn't any merit on your part that I'm doing this for you. It's not because of your righteousness or your humility or your submissiveness or any of that. I know you. I know what you're like. You're a stiff-necked people. And so, bottom line is, well, then why is he doing it? For his own glory, because he loves them. That kind of thing. That's what he's getting at. This, uh, so we've, we've covered that. Calvin then chooses this moment to prove unconditional election again. Uh, be this as it may, let those now come forward who would bind God's election either to the worthiness of men or to the merit of works. Since they see one nation preferred above all others and hear that God was not for any reason moved to be more favorably inclined to a few ignoble, indeed even wicked and stubborn men, Will they quarrel with him because he chose to give such evidence of his mercy? You know what he's doing? Take these verses that God spoke of Israel and apply them to yourself. That's what he's saying here. Don't think, hey, ain't I something that God chose me? You know, it's got nothing to do with that. That's why it just, it just, it doesn't get me upset. It just, it, I think of it as humorous when people say that Calvinism leads to arrogance and pride. It's study it again, friends. <laughs> it leads to deep humility because God keeps saying these kinds of things to us. I have searched you. I have known you. And there was nothing in you that would make me choose you. All right. And if there is now anything good in you, where do you think it came from? Whether it's repentance or faith or any of the graces or the fruit of the spirit or anything good, God put you there. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. So this gracious, unconditional national election then was the basis for much thankfulness. Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, uh, the people he chose for his inheritance. So this uh, a good ground for thanksgiving and I think an excellent place for us to stop. So God willing, we can uh, look into some more issues of election reprobation next week. Time maybe, we've got two minutes, time for a couple of questions or comments. Discussing the election of Israel as a nation, something that comes to mind to me is it's obvious that in the Old Covenant, God looked at the world almost by nations. 
but with the new covenant, not so much. Mm-hmm. Do you think under the new covenant, God treats the nations the same way he did in the, under the old covenant? No, not the same way. But I wouldn't say that God has entirely, has entirely forgotten nations because we know in Revelation 7 there are people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So he really seems to want treasured jewels from each nation. And you get the sense in Isaiah, some verses in Isaiah and also in Revelation, that the wealth of the beauty of the nations comes streaming into the New Jerusalem. So every culture, every people has its own way of worshiping Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, in Isaiah 19, I think it is, where he's boasting about different tribes and what they're like. You know, the, the Ethiopians are tall and smooth-skinned or whatever. He talks about them because he made them, like he's boasting about, about the creation that he's made in the book of Job. Each, I think, culture has its own attributes. And, and out of that can come some worship that's glorifying to God. So he remembers the nations, but you're right. It's not biological. Um, because, you know, the two of you have children doesn't mean that all of them will be in heaven, although God frequently works along family lines, really remarkably works along family lines. I mean, the overwhelming majority of Christians, I think, that are on the earth today, their family had an influence in them coming to Christ. Definitely more than 50%. Way more, than I think, than 50%. So clearly God blesses families and brings many. But Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven brother and sister and mother. He redefines family roles then, and then even Paul picks up, remember Rufus's mother, he says, who's been a mother to me? Eat your soup, you're looking thin, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, who is Rufus's mother? Well, kind of a surrogate mother to me. She's uh, saying I'm looking a little thin, you know? Wow, worse than the last time I saw you. You know, she's being a mother. So, anyway, there's, yeah, redefinition in that regard. But still, still, the biological and nuclear family is still important in God's plans. Hence, there are New Testament commands for it. Yes, Susan. On page four, there's a quote by um, Calvin, and he uses very, very strong language to warn against avoiding topic the discussion of predestination. Because he says, wickedly defraud people, accuse yeah. and scoff at the That's Calvin. Then yeah. It reminded me when, when you started talking about his avoidance of the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm t- so my question is at the very end in 22, 18, there are two curses God gives. One, if you add to yeah. those words in this, and secondly, if you take away. Sure. But He doesn't seem to give the curse for not, take, you know, not saying anything about it. Well, let, let's just let's just let us all off the hook here. If you have to have written a commentary in the book of Revelation to go to heaven, we're all in trouble. All right. I mean, the the man just didn't write a huh. Double amen to that one. Yeah, I mean, all I'm saying is in his writing, he doesn't tend to go there. I don't know that personally he disregarded the book or didn't love it. I'm just saying there's just not a footprint on Revelation there. And, you know, I, I can make these comments because they're true. But to go beyond into his heart isn't for me to do. I don't know what, what he did. So I don't think Calvin would ever take away from the book of Revelation. I think he just didn't do much with it. I think he wanted to avoid making some mistakes exegetically with it. Andy, would you mind closing us in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching 
for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.